are now listening to the February 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, this is Terry with Psalms, This Is My Song, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. When I see all the families get together eating and laughing, especially during a holiday season like Christmas, I am reminded of the phrase, being in harmony. They conjure up an image of a harmonious home. I wish for all your homes to always be in harmony. Being in harmony means having warm, friendly relationships with each other and being in peace with each other. It reflects a state of happiness. However, it is a little surprising that we rarely use the phrase being in harmony in situations other than families getting together. For instance, we do not say, I am in harmony with friends, or I am harmony with co-workers. When I look up the phrase being in harmony, I find responses mostly related to families living together in harmony. It seems that the idea of being in harmony is most appropriate when referring to families. The Bible also refers to the phrases like being in harmony or being in peace in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In particular, the Israelites in the Old Testament gave peace offerings to God. A peace offering in the Old Testament is actually what we call the third offering after the burnt offering and the meal offering. The burnt offering was the first offering offered as a propitiation through the burning of the animal sacrifices. The meal offering, as the second offering, was to give thanksgiving with grains once the sin was redeemed through the burnt offering. People in Israel were in harmony with God through the burnt offering and the meal offering. That meant they were now at peace with God and were most thankful. Therefore, the people then gave the peace offering as the third offering, as a way of thanking God for His grace by the sacrifice of animals and sharing them with people to eat through the first and second offerings. It meant that God had now received the Israelites as His family to eat and drink with Him. That's why the peace offering and thanks offering came together when we look at the regulation about sacrifices of peace offerings in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11-38. through 38. Shall we read together from verses 11 to 13? They read, These are the regulations for the peace offering anyone may present to the Lord. If they offered as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, they are to offer thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with oil, and thick loaves of the finest flour, well kneaded, and with oil mixed in. Along with their peace offering of thanksgiving, they are to present an offering with thick loaves of bread made with yeast. The Israelites couldn't help but give peace offerings with thanksgiving because God redeemed their sins and took them in as His children. In other words, the peace offering came from Israelites' thankfulness toward God who redeemed them from their sins and considered them as his children. In the book of Psalms, there is a song known as Thanksgiving. It is Psalm 100, 
the subject of today's message. Although it has only five verses, it captures the psalmist's thankfulness towards God. In verse 4, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Here, entering into his gates and his courts means that we are entering into the temple of God. That is to say, we are entering the dwelling of God to worship Him with thanksgiving. We enter His gates and His courts to give thanks to Him and praise His name because He redeemed our sins and took us as His children. How about you? Do you live a life with thanksgiving because we are in harmony with God? What does the scripture say about us and how we were before we met God? Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 to 3 tell us about the wretched state we were in when we first met God our Lord. It refers to the state we were in as the state in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We all were disobedient and deserving of God's wrath before we accepted Jesus Christ. Through his obedience at the cross, Jesus offered a way to become the children of God. John chapter 1 verses 12 through 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. I want us to be thankful for God's grace that opened up a way for us to become redeemed. As I mentioned in the beginning, being in harmony is most appropriate when used in context of families and homes. We were enemies of God, but He made us His children. He made us to be in harmony with Him to become part of His family. Why don't we come forward to Him with thanksgiving and praise? Let's not forget His grace as long as we live. In closing, I would like to read Psalm 100 and wish this particular song could also be your confession and testimony. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for the
for salvation And thank you for unending grace Thank you for your hope Thank you for this life you give There is no i
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is the unassailable love of God. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. There are at least three reasons, I think, that we doubt God's love for us. First, we misunderstand God's love. We very often think of love as being conditional, like an if-then statement. If this condition is met, then I will be lovable. If, so for example, if I can stop falling into a specific sin, then God will be able to love me. A second reason, accusations from Satan, our conscience, and the law. We are stung with accusations from Satan, who points out very true things about us, reminds us of the things that we have done. He accuses us of being sinful, and he's not wrong. Our conscience, too, makes us think that we are unlovable. We have a deep existential awareness that we are not what we should be. And beyond that, God's law points out even more clearly the sinfulness of our sin. The law came along to multiply our trespasses against God. This is Romans 5.20. Third, we experience suffering. We are prone to think that if God loved us, we wouldn't experience any suffering. Living under the weight of sinful passions of the flesh and enduring the suffering of slings and arrows feels suspiciously like God's wrath being poured out upon us. We might think, he must be displeased with me or I wouldn't be in this distress that I'm in. Well, today's sermon text puts all those fears to rest. We won't plumb the depths of everything that this passage has to say. My goal is simply to explain what it says, what it means, why it matters. But we're not going to come close to draining all of the implications from this passage in the next 40 minutes or so. Because even if we spent eternity on it, we still wouldn't be done considering the boundless love of God. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky." I've come to terms with this fact, and in an effort to preserve the ink in your pen, today's big idea is four words. God is for you. God is for you. Here's our outline. First, God gave his son for you. We're going to see this in verses 31 to 32. Second, the ultimate judge already enacted justice for you. We see this in 33 to 34. Third, nothing will separate you from God's love for you. We see this in 35 through 39. First, God gave his son for you. What then shall we say to these things? I'll read verses 31 and 32 back into our hearing. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? With Christ, all things are yours. All things are yours with Christ. This passage marks the end of a long train of thought that goes back to, at the very least, the beginning of chapter 5, perhaps even in the beginning of the book of Romans, but at least back to chapter 5. And so when he asks the question, what then shall we say to these things, he's thinking about these sort of truths that we've read uh, over the weeks here in Romans. Romans 5 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord, Jesus Christ. He will then spend the next three chapters fleshing that out for us. And now he's summing it all up. He's putting a bow on it. We can rejoice in suffering because it ultimately produces hope. And that hope will not be put to shame. God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that we're saved from God's wrath. So this this whole passage that we're reading this morning is lifting our eyes and reminding us of God's promises, of his sovereignty, of his greatness, of God's otherness. Paul's not playing out a hypothetical situation here when he asks this question here. He's he's not simply doing a thought experiment. He's making a point. When he asks this question, you can add a little exclamation point to it. Who could be against us? And we know, of course, that there can be those who are against us. There are forces against us. We know this experientially. But when we realize that God is for us, no one who is against us matters. We realize that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper or succeed. How do we know this? We read the next verse and he explains it. How do we know that God is for us? Because he handed over his son to be condemned in our place. That's the evidence. If you don't know if God is for you, you look to the cross. Sometimes we misunderstand God's love. Uh, And part of the reason is we read our own understanding of a fallen experience of human love back up into the person of God. We experience love as an emotional affection for something that is lovely. So we assume that there must be a necessity, a need, for there to be something lovely about us in order for God to set his love upon us. But God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than, his, than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. Remember that Jesus himself said that he did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And remember what Paul has already told us. Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his love for us in that we were, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God's love is not enabled by our being lovely enough for him. 
the National Football League held their draft just a few weeks ago. All the football players who are eligible for the draft go to an event where they're going to put all their skills on display. So they'll throw the ball as far as they can. They will jump as high as they can, lift as much weights as they can, run as fast as they can. Coaches from all the NFL teams there are trying to watch, trying to observe, trying to figure out who the best players are because they want to draft them into their own team. And so the coaches read through the stat sheets and they pick out the best players they can get. Every team wants to choose the best players for themselves so that they can win the championship next year. God did not choose you based on your stat sheet. If you had a trading card with your godliness stats on the back, it would be an embarrassment. Let's just be honest. God didn't flip through a deck of cards before he laid the foundations in the world and say, oh, this lady's going to go to church every Sunday. She'll be able to recite the Westminster Catechism. I need her on my team so that I can win the championship. If there was such a deck of cards, and there's not, if there was, none of our cards would read anything but rebellious child of Adam. We, just like Paul, can be honest about our unworthiness. We can lay our hand on that truth, and we can affirm that it reflects reality. And at the same time, we can lay hold of this reality. Nothing is more precious or of more worth than Christ. And the Father gave him up for you. The only begotten eternal Son of God. Just in case you've forgotten who it is that we're speaking about here. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created through him and for him. He is before all things and he holds all things together. He is the heir of all things. Every bit of land, every head of cattle, every pound of platinum, every bit of Bitcoin, every last red cent belongs to Christ. His worth is beyond comparison. His riches are unsearchable. He is incomparably rich in goodness, in wisdom, in glory, and in patience. One drop of his grace is worth more than all of the gold of all of the earth. And no matter how much of his grace he expends, his resources never get drained. Like a burning bush that is never consumed, or a flowing fountain that is never drained If every saint and angel combined their efforts to reach the bottom of his riches, we never would get there. This Jesus, his precious blood, was poured out by the Father for you. So while we confess truthfully and humbly our unworthiness, we cling tightly to the declaration that God the Father saw fit to give up the most worthy person for us. Another Christian mystery to add to the list. Our unworthiness and our worth. If we have Christ, we have all things, because Christ is the heir of all things, and by faith we are his brother, sister, and we share in his inheritance as precious daughters and treasured sons. All things are yours. All things here, of course, is a mixture of of things now, like the forgiveness of sins or adoption as sons and daughters, the indwelling spirit of Christ. 
but it's also a mixture of things yet to come, like the final resurrection to life everlasting and reigning with him in glory over a new heavens and a new earth. But the point here is that God will not, when all is said and done, withhold anything good from his people because he's already given us the greatest good in Christ himself. So when you think that God won't be able to love you because you're unworthy, just reminded that only unworthy people have ever found salvation in Christ. This is point two. The ultimate judge already enacted justice for you. Verses 33 to 34 say this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if God is for us, no one of any real danger can really be against us. No one can bring a charge against us or condemn us Because God has justified us and Christ has paid the penalty of our condemnation that we do rightly owe. Notice that condemnation and accusation, bringing a charge, those two realities are set up in contrast over against justification and intercession. And notice how that's working there in the text. There are two questions in these two verses. The first is, who will bring a charge against God's elect. And then the second is, who is to condemn? In the American criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate, yet equally important groups. The police who investigate the crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. Some of y'all got ahead of me. That was a law and order reference. This is kind of like that. You've got two potential threats to your assurance of faith. One, that that might bring you up on accusation of charges of breaking the law. And then the other might be to declare you guilty of those charges that have been brought against you. But Paul answers both of these questions by showing us that they are not legitimate threats. The first question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, just think with me. If you were brought up on charges of breaking God's law, who would preside over that case? Who has jurisdiction over God's law? It is God. And remember what God has already said. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God has forgiven you, you're forgiven. The judge of all the earth has already declared you not guilty. Better yet, he declared you righteous. God has already declared his verdict, so it makes no sense for someone to bring a charge against you. The second question, who is the one who condemns? Paul here responds by saying that Jesus has already paid the penalty for your condemnation. This is what he's saying when he says Jesus is the one who died. The wages of sin is death. He is the one who died, and he died in your place. But it gets even better than that because he didn't just absorb the penalty He rose again from the dead and demonstrated that death itself is defeated. And it gets even better than that. Because not only did he raise from the dead, he also ascended to the right hand of the Father, where even now he is currently interceding for us. In other words, Christ has already accomplished 
your salvation, and he is currently applying your salvation. Jesus interceding for us means that he's making a case on our behalf, a third party between the Father and you, between God and man, the God-man. He makes your case before the judge based on the merits of his blood, not your worthiness. What Jesus is doing as he intercedes is really the opposite of bringing a charge against you. So we might face charges of guilt, we might fear condemnation, but God has already justified you in the past, and Christ is presently speaking on your behalf. And the Father delights in the case that the Son is making for you. We mentioned earlier that sometimes we have a hard time believing that God loves us because we have faced accusations from Satan, our conscience, and from God's law. And the only way that those accusations would actually be able to settle into our heart to cause us to fear, to cause us despair, is if we didn't believe that God is for us. Think back to that first man, Adam. God told him that a penalty of death would follow his rebellion. But Eve rebelled. Adam rebelled. They assumed that God was withholding something good from them. So they rebelled against his law. And afterwards, they feared that God would be their judge. And so they hid because they were afraid. They expected the judgment of God. And you and I, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, have inherited that fear. And if you have not, let me be clear, if you have not trusted in Christ to take on that penalty in your place, you should fear the judgment. That's a good thing. You, you should not only think of God as your creator, but as your judge. But if you cling to Christ, he's not just your creator and your judge, but he is your father. Even for us who have extended our faith, who've put our trust in Christ, we still have a hard time with this, however. We still have that fear that God's just waiting to jump out of nowhere and zap us for our sin. So we hide. It's easy for us to read a text like this and to think that it's true. It's another thing entirely to live as if it were true. If you really believe that you were an adopted child of God, if you believed all of Satan's accusations against you fell on deaf ears, if you believe that God the Father is leaning in and hearing Christ's intercession for you on your behalf and listening and smiling and nodding, if you took the time to correct your conscience, if you reminded yourself that slavery, despair, and a spirit of fear do not define you as a child of God, if you shifted your vision of God's law, And you saw God's law not as something that should bring you fear of punishment, but rather something that is a guide to help you know how to please God with your obedience. Something that is helpful for you to lead to your own flourishing and the flourishing of those around you. What if you believed that? Think back to the most recent time you've heard one of these voices of accusation. It could have been over something, a serious, dangerous sin. It might have been something over something trivial, the sort of thing that if you were to explain it out loud, the sort of things that go on in your mind and the voices of accusation, if you were to explain it out loud, people would be like, wow, why would you even hold yourself to that standard? Think back to that last event and remember, recall, 
that God the Father, the judge, justified you. The Son paid your penalty as a sacrificial lamb and even now intercedes for you as a sympathetic high priest. In other words, stop thinking about yourself. Think more about God. Remember what comes just before these verses. It was a couple of weeks ago, but it's just there before these verses in Romans 8. That golden chain of salvation in which we read that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified those that are his. This is why Paul refers to those upon whom God has set his steadfast love in this verse as God's elect. Now, we might think of being called God's elect as something that would, we could be proud of. This is a, a cause of uh, boasting or something, that we are part of God's elect. But it's actually a really humbling title. It's an acknowledgement that no one would have chosen God unless God had not first chosen him or her. That his choice is based on his good pleasure and not any conditions that you needed to meet in order to justify for his love, to qualify for his love. The truth is, it's actually prideful to reject this title because it implies that there was something about you that attracted his grace and caused him to bless you with salvation. That's actually making God your elect. And that's to get the order backwards. If you've come to Christ as your Savior, if you have picked up your cross and you are following him, it's evidence that you are a part of this group that Paul refers to here as God's elect. We would not have loved him if he had not first loved us. So, do you delight in the triune God of your salvation? Not perfectly, not constantly as we ought, but sincerely. If you do, know that God is not second-guessing whether or not he should have saved you. He's not second-guessing his adoption of you. He's not tired of you. He's not waiting for your case to come back up on appeal at some point in the future. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment will be refuted. God himself vindicates you. And there is no court more supreme than God's heavenly court. Out of mere grace, without any merit of your own, he imputes to you the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. There should be no fear or unbelief because the Father has put to grief his spotless Son for us. No wrath remains for us to face. Don't fear being banished from God because he is for you. And if he is for you, nothing will separate you from his love. Point three, nothing will separate you from God's love for you. Verses 35 to 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul ends this 
section of Romans with another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to list some things that we might assume could potentially separate us from God's love. He says that they can't, and then he just reaffirms that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He uses just notice at the beginning and end of this particular passage, 35 to 39. Notice at the beginning he says that he refers to the love of Christ or the love of God. He uses them interchangeably here, the beginning and the end. Just make note that Jesus' death did not cause the Father to love you. His substitutionary atonement on your behalf was an evidence that the Father loves you. It was not the cause of his love for you. It might seem like a small thing, but we wouldn't want to misunderstand the Trinity by thinking that Christ's intercession on your behalf means that God the Father doesn't want you to be saved and Jesus is convincing him that you, that you ought to be. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are united in their mission to save you. He lists off things that we assume might keep us from the love of God, and he says he is convinced that nothing in reality truly can. He lists off basic physiological and security needs, the sort of the basic things that you might find on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Tribulation, outward trials, distress, inward anxieties, persecution, opposition from God's enemies, famine, a lack of food and water, nakedness, a lack of clothing and shelter, danger, threats to physical security, a sword, acts of, or threats of violence, actually, acts of violence, including potentially even death. This is why he quotes Psalm 44 right on the tail end of that there. Psalm 44 is a psalm of national lament. Psalm 44 is giving voice to Israel, God's chosen people who are calling out to God for salvation during their own experiences of opposition from God's enemies. They testify that they haven't abandoned God, they haven't forgotten him, they haven't been false to his covenant, and yet they are subjected to danger, to persecution, and even death. Paul quotes this verse to remind us that God's people have often faced situations like this, but that does not mean that they should interpret that situation to mean that they are separated from the love of God. In fact, God preserved psalms like this one to help us voice our pain while we suffer, just as Christ used the psalms to give voice to his pain while he suffered. We are prone to think that if God loved us, we wouldn't experience suffering. But that's to misinterpret God's providence. God has many purposes for our suffering, so we can't look at our trials and assume that they must be evidence that God is not for us. He says that God makes us more than conquerors, even in all those things. This is the only time that this particular word is used in the Bible. It means we prevail mightily. We are abundantly victorious. We don't just conquer, but we super conquer. Kind of like the embarrassing victory that the Mavericks gained over the Suns this last Sunday. Too soon. It's going above and beyond what is necessary for victory. 
Suffering precedes glory, and the suffering, weighty as it is, isn't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when Christ returns or calls us home. And so Paul says that he is convinced, he is sure, that death or life, angels or rulers, and we should think of demons when he says rulers, rulers of this present age, like he uses it in Ephesians 6, things present, things to come, no power, no height, nor depth, And then he throws in a catch-all category at the end. Anything else in all creation. Anything that's created is everything that is not God. And we've already clarified that God is for you. So that about covers it. That's anything and everything ever. This is the list of things that cannot keep you from God's love, as Paul provides it for us there at the end of Romans 8. These are categories that pretty much cover everything. And so the next time that you're tempted to despair of God's love for you, think about what it is that's troubling you, and then bring it to these categories and see if it fits into one of them. It will. Spoiler alert. I'm kind of a visual learner. Let me give you a pie chart and see if that helps. These are the things that can separate you from God's love. It was kind of a boring pie chart because it was actually just a blue circle. So I added some yellow to it just to spiff it up a little bit. But the point is the same. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, Christian. So the next time you are tempted to tip into despair, repent of your disbelief. Cling to God's promises. Rest the full weight of your heavy soul upon the promise that God loves you. And as you do that, you'll begin to reframe your experience of suffering. And you can turn it into fuel for faithfulness rather than a reason to despair. You are not forsaken by God. You are not uniquely unlovable. His love for you is unassailable, which just simply means that it cannot be defeated. God's love is absolute. God's love is conclusive. It is indisputable. It is infallible. It is undeniable. It is determined. It is firm. It is fixed. It is steadfast. And it endures forever. Right?
The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, if you knew a storm was coming, you would probably prepare for that, right? If you knew a flood was coming, you would probably prepare for that flood. If you knew there was a burglar in your neighborhood, you'd heard all the reports, you probably would be on the alert. You would have a heightened awareness. Well, what about spiritual things? Today, we're going to be reminded that there are dangers to the church, such as false teachers, that there will be those who will arise among you, as Peter will share. So how should we prepare for that real possibility? 
Now, we don't focus on false teachers, but we want to give it the weight that the Word of God gives it so that we are prepared for what God is warning us against. So today, we're going to see how we can, as believers, avoid the danger that false teachers pose as we continue our study in Second Peter. And Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 2 today. So would you turn your Bibles to Second Peter, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 22. 17 to 22. Now the context, we have seen so far the Apostle Peter is writing to believers, those who have a like-saving faith in Jesus as he and the other apostles do, a true faith in Jesus Christ. And now what is this book about? Well, simply, it's about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And within that, it's about being protected from threats to that growth in Jesus Christ. Now indeed, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and verse 8, in the very last verse of this book, we have the theme about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might remember in chapter 1 that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. We have His precious and magnificent promises. Tremendous. We have the Word of God, everything we need for our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is through the Spirit-empowered Word that we grow in our relationship with Jesus. It is by His Word that we are equipped for everything that this life has to offer to us in the context of walking with Jesus and our relationship with the living God. And within that reality, we see that we are called to obey or to act upon His Word in the context of faith as believers. We are to do it by His power and strength, by faith. And as we grow, there should be some things that are manifest in the lives of believers. And if they're not, that means we're useless and unfruitful in our relationship with Jesus. We saw in chapter 1 that we should all be increasing the sense in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. That all of these things should be manifest in the life of a true believer. And if they are, we will be useful and fruitful in our relationship with Jesus. And Peter shared that he was ready to remind us of these things, that it was right to remind us of these things, knowing that his time on the earth was short and the Lord had made it known that he was going to go home to him soon. And then we saw the absolute reliability and surety of the Scriptures, that it is absolutely sure over human experience, even an experience that God brought the Apostle Peter on the mountain of transfiguration. Indeed, we have now the Scriptures made more sure, the written Word more sure, graphe, the Word of God. And we do beautifully to heed the Word of God. When you're a true believer and you obey God's Word by His power and strength, it is a beautiful thing. We do beautifully. We do well to heed the Word of God. And then we saw Peter made it clear that believers know something first and foremost at the end of chapter 1, that no prophecy of the written Word Scripture becomes of one's own personal interpretation Why? Because no prophecy ever came about by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. It's God's Word. It didn't come from men, but God brought it forth through men by His Spirit. And then in the end of chapter 1, we see that within that, having to heed and do well by beautifully heeding His Word, he moves into chapter 2 where there's a contrast And that's when it goes on in chapters 2 and 3, that there are threats to our relationship with Jesus Christ. There are threats to His Word, and they are subtle threats, but yet they are very dangerous. And so after admonishing and establishing the truth of God's Word, the very means which we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, 
by faith through his spirit, Peter moves on to reveal that there are threats to our relationship with Jesus. And that's what chapters 2 and 3 are about. And we are going to today, Lord willing, finish chapter 2, but we need to recognize all of chapter 2 is one unit. So I'm going to be referring to what we've seen up to the point where we're going to be in our passage today. So again, if you're not there already, turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 22. I'm going to read our passage, and I'm going to not go back to verse 1 as I had planned, because it's pretty long, but I'm going to be referring to those portions. Well, let's start in verse 17. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they had escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So how can we avoid the dangers that false teachers pose? Well, remember what we saw before, that God has revealed that they are going to come, that they are going to be among us. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. They will arise among you. They will be among you. And the last time we were together in 2 Peter, we saw that God revealed their internal characteristics, which we cannot see, to warn us about what is really going on. And today we're going to see their methods on how they do things so that we can spot them. So with that in mind, let's review what we saw in terms of this portion last time. Look back in chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. He's speaking to believers in the church who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even to the point we saw of denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Then there's going to be damage, isn't there? And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit who? You. This is believers. They will exploit you. Remember we saw that word. Their business is to exploit with false words or plastic words, moldable words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. You've got everything you need in Jesus Christ through the word of God by his spirit as you trust in him. But there's going to be threats to that. There's going to be threats to your walk with Jesus Christ and they will come in among you. And you'll remember we saw in verses 4 to 10 that there was an explanation concerning the reality that the judgment of these false teachers doesn't pass God by. That God understands and sees what they're doing and their judgment is sure. And then he gave three examples of previous judgments that show that people do not get away with anything. In verses 4 to 10 we saw that he had the judgment upon those angels who had sinned, those fallen angels and a previous judgment on the world of the ungodly by a worldwide flood. And then a previous judgment as an example on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
having delivered righteous Noah and his family and respectively righteous Lot. And then we had a summary. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Hey, if God has already brought forth these examples of judgment, don't worry about these guys. God is reserving them for judgment. And notice what he says, verse 10. Especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's really a summary of these false teachers, which he's going to explain in a minute. And so if you were with us in the last time, we saw that he gave us then an in-depth explanation of what's going on on the inside of those false teachers that we can't see, but we need to know to be warned. And then, as I shared today, we'll see their methods in which they do the things they do. Notice in the middle of verse 10, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. False teachers indulge in the flesh a little earlier and their corrupt desires, and they despise or look down upon spiritual authority as exemplified by their viewpoint of fallen angels and how they just speak towards them and at them. And even Michael, the archangel, wouldn't dare pronounce a railing judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord is sovereign over that. There is a despising of authority and there is a reviling. There is a reviling and a reveling in sin. They actually love what they do. They suffer, verse 13, suffering wrong is the wages is doing wrong. They're going to suffer harm. But they love what they do. Look in the middle of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They come in among you and they count it as joy in their lives to deceive the body of Christ. It's pretty horrible when you look at it. They are stains and blemishes. In light of the believers who are the saints, they are stains and blemishes. Reveling, verse 13, the end, in their deceptions. They receive great joy in deceiving. We need to recognize what's going on the inside of these people who are pretending to be followers of Jesus Christ, who are rising up and then introducing things that are evil. And he says here, their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. They are, as Jude would say, hidden reefs in your love feast. They're with you, but it's like a reef that you're going to hit with your ship and you're going to go down. He says, verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. This is what's going on in their hearts. Enticing or luring, as we'll see today, unstable souls. There are those in the body of Christ who, from forgetfulness or sin or a lack of understanding of the Word of God, we're putting that aside, focusing on the things of earth, who are unstable in their walk. And these people go after those people. He says, enticing unstable souls. Having a heart trained, gumnazo, in the gym of greed. Accursed children. They're not children of God, they're children of a curse. And they are wicked men and women who delight in their wrongdoing. And it's hard for us to reckon the reality that people could actually be that way and say they follow Jesus. Could be that way and acknowledge the Lord and Savior Jesus, as we're going to see in a little bit. They acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, by the way. But actually, they receive joy out of doing evil. This is what they live for. This is what they enjoy. This is what they delight in. Very sad. They delight in deceiving believers. End of 13. They enjoy introducing destructive heresies. Verse 1. Luring unstable souls. Verse 15. Enticing the arrogant, empty, with fleshly words. Verse 18. They enjoy and delight 
exploiting with false words, verse 3. They receive a perverse delight in it. They're sneaky. They do it undercover. And they cannot stop sinning. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. And they desire to make money, power, position, of sensuality, whatever it might be. The benefit they get having people follow them is why they do it. They love, like Balaam did, the wages of unrighteous. They love the paycheck they get for doing evil. That's what's going on on the inside, which we cannot see. And you say, well, how are we going to spot them? Well, from there, we can't spot them, can we? They're hidden, right? But God is gracious to show us in his word how we can spot them, to give us very simple statements that describe their MO, how they do things, that we can spot then and then identify so that we can stay away. And that's what we're going to look at today, where we're going to see God reveals their deceptive and dangerous methods. Indeed, these deceptive and dangerous false teachers portray themselves who will quench your spiritual thirst, yet bring nothing but bondage. Look at verse 17 as we start our passage. It says in verse 17, These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved." So we're going to see the characteristics on how we can spot them. First of all, we're going to see their dangerous and deceptive methods pictured. We're going to have two illustrations that God gives that we can understand, which help us identify these false teachers. Illustrations or metaphors. And then there is an explanation concerning those illustrations. Notice again, verse 17, They are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Two illustrations, two metaphors that we can understand. The first one, notice, they are springs without water. This is a simple but poignant illustration. Notice the term spring. It speaks just of that. It is a source of water, not a container of water. A well would be a container of water. A spring is a source of water. A spring without water is no spring at all, by the way. They are springs. They appear to be that which is a source of, in the context here, spiritual nourishment and satisfaction to fulfill your spiritual thirst. But ultimately, notice he says, they are springs without water. They are springs without water. This is one way you'll be able to spot them. They look like you're going to be fed the truth of God, the word of God, and built up, but you ultimately are not. It looks like you're going to get a wonderful meal concerning Jesus Christ and your walk with him. And ultimately, after all the big words are done, there's nothing of substance underneath. This is the identifying marks here. They are springs without water. They are frauds. How can a spring have no water? It can't. It's not really a true spring, is it? But it appears to be one. And notice we know that the springs without water refers to their false teaching. Remember, this whole passage is about false teachers will arise among you. 
So we saw earlier in chapter 1, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, things that are contrary to the truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ. They will secretly introduce that. Verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. The word exploit is do business. They will do business, their business, with plastic words. They're going to maneuver their words to do their wickedness. And we see also in verse 18, as we'll see in a moment, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They are those who supposedly represent the Lord. They are those who appear to be bringing forth abundant water like a spring, but yet in reality there is no water. There is none at all. They bring forth nothing. They will not quench your spiritual thirst in your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is one of the major identifying marks of false teachers that will arise in the church. We can spot this, by the way, and we're going to see more explanations concerning it. Major identifying mark. They may have words that are grandiose and appear to feed your spiritual thirst. Speaking of Jesus, they even, as we will see, promise you freedom. Speaking of freedom from sin, that's what we want. We want to be set free. We don't want to be walking in bondage. We want to follow Jesus. They promise you freedom, but they are spiritual frauds. You see, God's word is that which he uses to grow us in respect to salvation. First of all, we come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the gospel. And then secondly, we grow in respect to salvation through his word. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And these frauds make a show as though they're going to give it to you, a spring full. But there's nothing, ultimately, there. One pastor says it looks like a spring, but it has no water. And therefore, it's not a spring in reality. They are springs with no water. They present themselves as those who will bring forth spiritual water to quench your thirst. Obviously, the Word of God. They present themselves as if you're going to get the Word of God fully, and yet it doesn't get delivered to you, or it gets twisted or lessened or whatever it might be, as we'll see in a moment. These false teachers deceptively appear to be those who overwhelmingly nourish. Think of a spring. It's bubbling up with water. That's what they look like. But because they're not bringing the word or they're not rightly dividing it, they're twisting it or lessening it or omitting it, you actually get nothing. And notice, not only does he describe them as springs without water, he also describes them as, verse 17, mists driven by a storm. We have a slightly different metaphor, but it's close, but it is different. The term mist speaks of a low cloud. You could think of fog, right? You know, if you've got a low cloud and you're in fog, you're going to get maybe a little bit of mist on you, a little dew. It's a very small amount of moisture, right? It's just a little mist, right? And he says they are mist driven by a storm. The term driven means just driven. It means exactly what it means. And the term storm, you could translate it violent storm or tempest, even hurricane. Think of a violent storm with the winds and the rain. It's just pouring rain and it's violent and the winds are throwing things all over the place. Think of a hurricane. The picture you have is a violent storm that should be bringing forth a deluge of water, but yet you're getting only a tiny mist on you. That's all you get. And yet this illustration also points to the damage that they do. It's like a storm. It destroys you spiritually and all you have is this little mist of the realities concerning Jesus Christ. There are myths driven by a violent storm. 
One pastor writes, these false teachers were like violent storms producing theatrics, noise, motion, something to watch, but nothing profitable happens. In fact, their storms ultimately bring destruction to their adherents. Oh, how tremendous to see and hear these folks. They are very impressive, but there is no water from the spring and there is no rain from the clouds. People are thirsting today for the word of God and yet it is not being given to them. And the sad part is they actually think they are being fed. When you talk to people who've been caught up in this, they'll tell you, I feel like I'm being fed, but they're not. It's false. They are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. In the book of Jude, look in Jude just up a little bit right before Revelation. The book of Jude, it's a somewhat parallel book to Second Peter, by the way. And you'll find in the letters of Paul and Peter and here Jude, and these last things that they feel they need to say by the Spirit of God are warning you about these threats. Jude, verse 12. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, and the waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. The reality is they appear to be that which will bring forth the word of God, but they don't in reality. You know, and God doesn't miss a beat. He declares in Jude, as we just read, but also here that black darkness has been reserved. When I was held up in chains, the river was free. When I was covered in stains, the river was clean. When I was losing my way, I can see the river Thirsty and dry, you were more. 
It's washing me away My life is in the river now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.